Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land and welcome to Juanced. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. And uh, we are very excited to be with you with our good friend, Daniel Rakov. How are you doing, man? How are you doing? Good. Where, where are you talking to us I'm, from? I'm talking from Netanya. Netanya, otherwise known as uh, Little France or Little Russia, depending on who you are in uh, Israel, right? No, this is France. France. Little France. Just yeah. France. Okay. Just France these days. <laughs> it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Uh, when is it not? Yeah, I mean, COVID has been nuts. Um, and, and in my house, thankfully, we've avoided COVID, although we've had multiple scares and many tests. And uh, my entire house so far, except for me, knock on wood, has been uh, sick with the, some kind of like a cold flu type thing. It's called Omicold. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> you, you have any... Uh, any COVID cases in your house, Daniel? No, but uh, a lot of flu. <laughs> a lot of flu. How about all you? The last week I was lying. Uh, we've we've all been under the weather, and and you know it's winter, so it's like there's this correlation of things where it's like, sure. you know, is it is it COVID? Is, is it, it cold? Right? Is it is it could, is it the same thing at this point? Well, I'm your sure. your voice, you can tell, usually you have your very very radiophonic, uh, clear voice. That, that's right. I don't have my radio voice this evening. I'll <laughs> do my best to try to put it back on. But uh, if we were talking yesterday, the day before, I was out. I mean, I we had wanted to do this on Thursday, uh, yeah. and and I think that it just or on Friday rather, and then. And Dan and I spoke on the phone, and I was like, I think I can do it. He's like, I, I didn't understand what you just said. It sounded like just air and squeaks. So I sat, I sat next to a guy in synagogue this morning. For the entire two hours I was sitting there, he was sneezing, coughing, and hacking up. And I was like, God, dude, get out of here. What are you doing in synagogue, man? Like, uh, Yeah, look, it's... I don't even know at this stage. I have to be honest with you. My wife's a teacher, Daniel, and she um, in, in, in an elementary school. And we have been for the entirety of the pandemic. She has not had her class go into be dude. And today, for the very first time, we have crossed that line and they're not all going into be dude. So she's in this big thing. And it's like the, the rules, nobody can follow them. They're all crazy and they're changing every day. And it's like, all right, at this point in time, do we just like, you know, do we, do we flip a coin? You going to be dude? You don't going to be dude? You, you know, play on Dandino? I don't know. What, I don't know how we're going to deal with it. I don't know. Um, how have you felt about all of uh, the changing rules uh, lately? I think that somebody in the government will have to uh, decide, and the people to follow. I'm not. Uh, I don't think that there is a right or wrong uh, way to to get the decisions done because simply somebody has to uh, to set the rules. And uh, to set to set the speed and the schedule, and uh, and people will have to follow this because I think that one of the main uh, ideas, the main uh, lessons from the pandemic was you have to uh, take decisions fast, and it's better to take a fast decision than the right or wrong decision. Right, it's better to take fast decisions than necessarily the right decision. Is that what you said? Yeah. 
That's interesting. I had a commander once in the army, and this was the uh, he was a general, um, and his motto was was yes, uh, better to make a fast decision than to take a really long time, even to make a better decision. Makes sense because if you don't, you're just leaving people up in the air, not knowing what the hell's going on. I guess so. And and, and in this context, also, it seems that the decisions change every day, literally. And and they say that that's in result of the changing circumstances. And I can understand that. But on the other hand, you're dealing with millions of people having to follow protocols of one way or another, and it's hard to get that message out there. It really, really is. You know, and if you're not, you know, reading the news that day, or if you're not following things, you could, you know, you might miss things. Uh, and one of the things that I notice right now that people are missing here in Israel and for our American audience or audience around the world that's tuning in, you don't, you know, you might not realize this, uh, but like how in the United States is difficult to get your hands on those rapid tests, it's also become difficult here to find the rapid test. And in the past, whereas that wasn't a problem because it was easy. Because ever, everyone had to do the PCR. It was easy for us to go yeah. do a PCR. And, and in times in America where it was not, it was easy here. Uh, it has now become uh, impossible if you're actually by, by, by uh, decision, if you're under 60 or not at risk, you are not getting a PCR test at this point in time, you know, unless you know you're paying what? for it privately. I, I got to say, I think, and I think that what the government just did here, for those of you in, in outside of Israel who are unaware, or those of you who don't follow Israel, Israel basically, I think, probably has some of the strictest um, COVID regulations and testing and quarantine and travel uh, regulations out of any country I can think of. Um, to the point where right, that's not like in East Asia, not like China or no, but but uh, certainly among Western countries, and uh, to the point where it was very difficult to travel. Uh, if you were exposed to someone who had COVID, you had to go. Originally, it was you had to go into quarantine. And then once you were vaccinated, you had to get a test and wait till the results. But now with the Omicron, the you know we're up. I think we had thirty thousand cases over the weekend. Yeah, and um, and and last week I think we had a thousand cases a day. So this is like, you know. I think the government just said it's just getting too much well, yeah, and, yeah. and we can't keep up with this. So go do your own test and, and we trust you. And, and, and I mean, look, hospitalizations they are, they legitimately don't have enough capacity to test us all, nor are no, they can't rapid tests. So you kind of, at this sort of stage have to throw your hands up and say, yep. Which for people that are regular listeners, the show will understand that it's, it's usually been my position that you should just let adults be adults and be responsible, well, which was the American which model and the, the circumstances kind of forced us to be in that position. Here I guess as well. so. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Have you, have you, Daniel? Have you traveled at all during this COVID period, like uh, outside of Israel? No. <laughs> didn't leave Israel. Not in, not in once. In, uh, on purpose, or just you didn't have a reason to? Uh, didn't have any reason. I, I, I must say that I've come came back from two trips abroad uh, about several weeks before the beginning of the. With the pandemics, and then I uh, didn't have any reason to travel. Got it. So I, I've had a lot of reasons to travel that I've put on hold. Uh, I made two trips to the U.S. during this period, and two trips to the UAE, and I'm actually got to go back to the UAE this week. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think I was going to be able to, and then they changed the regulations uh, last week, so now I can fly, and it's a risk. But but uh, I also I also traveled. Uh, uh, Twice to the U.S., once to the UAE uh, during this during this period, and how much did the travel though change your perspective on on on, on how what to was going travel? on here? No, on, on what was going on here yeah. in Israel? Yeah, in a huge way. Yeah, I mean, I remember you pre your first trip abroad, and then afterwards, and it was like night and day in mm. terms of just seeing like, wow, we could really be doing this differently. It is. So we we talked uh, we touched on 
the U.S. We touched on the UAE, but we want to talk about a different country today on the that's show. That's right. We you like to that? talk about a very, very different country. Very different country. But a country that's near and dear to a lot of us, uh, and that is... Well, which well, not near or dear, <laughs> far and far, far wide, and it's and, it, and it, I'll give you a hint: it's not Brazil. It rhymes with shmusha. <laughs> rhymes with shmusha. Uh, it is. It is Russia, of course, the and, Russian Federation. And uh, we have. Uh, is it safe to say, Daniel, that you are Israel's top Russia expert? Can I can I make that claim? No. <laughs> <laughs> Top, top five. <laughs> so I we, think it would not be modest for me to say. No, not you. Can and, I and say? There are, and there are, I think and there are several uh, quite good uh, experts on Russian subjects in Israel. Okay, so this is where you need to use a marketing background. He's one of Israel's leading experts. One of Israel's leading experts on Russia, definitely. Uh, you know, a top. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we will introduce Daniel um, more effectively before we do that. Let's uh, kick off the show. Let's kick off the show. Uh, check it, everybody. As you know, Juanced is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make sure that we can keep this show going and bring on great guests and like Daniel, bring, like Daniel, uh, and and so and seek out amazing content for your listening pleasure and also so that you can learn more about what's going on here in Israel and around and, the world. And so you can get more Juanced, right? Uh, so in order to do that, we ask uh, if you can open your hearts, minds, and maybe your pocketbooks and make a uh, contribution. You can give a one-time contribution uh, via our PayPal account. But, you know, why do that when you can make an ongoing contribution via, Even better. via our Patreon account? For more information on how to generously contribute to Juanced, you can find details on our website. That's www.juanced.com. Yep. You uh, can also invite us, uh, sponsor an episode for your organization, for your community. Uh, we can find the guest. You can find the guest. But uh, we promise that uh, we will. And I will and certainly I, try to do a better job. And I will say one. And I will say one other thing. We'll give a spot out for ourselves as well here. Now that travel is coming back to Israel, and I'm sure that that means that Dan will be invited to speak to many groups, and I will be bringing many groups. Uh, we would absolutely love to do juanced live podcast tapings for groups. Yep. As they come, we can sit down and interview a guest in front of your group. So if you have plans to travel to Israel in the near future, and this is something of, that would be of interest to you, reach out to your tour operator today and request Juanst on your next trip to Israel. There you go. Make sure you're following us also on our Facebook, uh, on our Instagram, and on our Twitter. We are at Juanst Podcast. And uh, if you are not yet subscribed, please do so on Apple Podcasts. Um, Spotify, Spotify, Stitcher, all of the podcast apps, and give us a good rating. We would very much appreciate it. So now, Dan, uh, why don't you introduce our guest? I will. Daniel Rakov uh, is an old friend. He's a good friend, and for a short time, I think you were you were a colleague and even a commander of mine uh, towards the end of my military career. An expert on Russian policy in the Middle East, a great power competition in the region. Served for more than twenty five years in IDF uh, Defense Intelligence. 2019 through 2021, he was a research fellow at the Russian Studies Program at the Institute for National Security Studies, and he is now a senior fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. We've been meaning to have Daniel on uh, for a while. We managed to, uh, uh, Daniel had uh, some conferences and a book that just came out, and uh, was uh, we're lucky that you're able to join us here on this uh, Saturday night. Welcome to Juanst. Happy to be here. Thank you. 
So how, how have you been? Um, when was this transition to uh, the Jerusalem Institute? So it was uh, during the last several weeks. And, uh, it was for more than two and a half years in the Institute of National Security Studies. And uh, they wanted to some new energies. And uh, we are at the peak of our work at INSS. And uh, one, one, two of my last projects at INSS were the one uh, big, con- the 30 years for Russian-Israeli relations project, which uh, included several uh, events. It was, uh, there was an online event. We had a two days uh, online conference in uh, the middle of December. Uh, and uh, these days we have a project which is being published. It's a special project because it is uh, published in three languages in parallel, uh, an edited volume of articles, uh, edited by me and Slim again from INSS, uh, dealing with Russian-Israeli relations. So it is both, it's all, it, it was already published uh, in, uh, in Russian, uh, a week ago, and in about a month it will be published in Hebrew, and hopefully soon in English. Well, con- congratulations on that. Um, do you did you write it in Russian, or did you guys have it translated? Oh, it was uh, written by about twenty mm. authors, so it's a uh, many many authors. I was an editor, uh, and I did write one article, and we have uh, authors from both from Israel, Russia and even two from the United States. Uh, and each was writing, uh, this is what made, made this pro- project complicated because each one was writing on his native language. Mm. You have to organize a translation. And I must say it's not a regular thing to do for INSS to publish, uh, to, to translate into Russian or for Russian. So uh, it was a unique project. I have a very, uh, I should say, elementary understanding of Russia and Russian you know, politics and Russian-Israeli relations just from, you know, basically living in the world and, and watching a lot of movies from the 80s. Um, <laughs> so uh, l- let me ask just a very naive question. Is there a lot of cooperation like that, academic cooperation between Russian intellectuals and academics and Israelis? So... Uh, is that normal? For INSS, it is a, it's a long tradition to have a co- cooperation with, uh, with Russians. They have an, even uh, an agreement and the partner, official partner, Russian, Institute, Russian Academy of Science Oriental Studies Institute. Uh, and, uh, and several Israeli establishments uh, do have uh, connections, which are formal. And in Russia, there is a, uh, there is a formal, almost uh, government-controlled, government uh, government-owned uh, academic establishment. And there are also uh, some uh, free freestanding standalone institutions uh, the, and the, and there, is, there are different venues of cooperation so I think that the, there are uh, circles in Israel and in the West which uh, prefer to not to cooperate with Russian official academy or to speak more to, to the positional circles because but uh, uh, I I came to I found out that uh, it's uh, there is a, a value in speaking to 
to everybody. So there is a value to speak to propositional figures, and there is a value to speak to official uh, academy. There is a value to speak to uh, of Russian officials to understand different kinds of insights. So each angle gives you another understanding of what Russia is. Is there, is there, uh, and, and again, you know, I know Russia a little bit better, but I'm also certainly nowhere near a Russia expert. Would you call, it, how much of a free society, free thinking society is it in the sense that if you're talking to a think tank or a professor, uh, how censored are their views? How, how much are they getting talking points from the government? Or, or is there a sense that when you're talking to you know, public intellectuals that you're getting an honest opinion and they feel that they're allowed to share whatever they want to share? So I think that uh, it depends how do you speak and who do you speak. So uh, the more uh, somebody is connected to the government and uh, if he speaks to the in public, I think that he will have to do some censoring, some censoring. So I, I think that in any case, he will not criticize openly, for, uh, for instance, and the, the president, or, or he will not, uh, uh, not, 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 not necessarily not criticize, but he will not attack. You know, okay. Yeah. But uh, but I think that that even uh, even the people who are in the academic establishment of Russia uh, will not say. That the, the Russian government is uh, 100% okay. For instance, uh, I will give you one example. There is a man called Fyodor Lukyanov. He's uh, uh, he editor in chief of uh, uh, of think tank uh, in Russia, and he is he has a, a weekly uh, program on the Russian official television dealing with international relations. And he's a scientific, uh, scientific uh, director of Valdai Forum, which is the main Russian uh, uh, Russian forum for foreign relations under the auspices of Russian presidency. So once in a year, he interviews Putin from a stage in a live for several hours. Nice. So so he's. It seems that he's part of the establishment. Uh, but when he, for instance, last week was uh, analyzing the current crisis between Russia and the West, uh, dealing with Ukraine, uh, so he said that uh, Russian, uh, so Russia would like to come to 45, which when it was at the peak of its power, United States wanted to come to the 91 when it was at the peak of its power. And the, the, the and the problem is that the, the 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 expectations are impossible. So, so even he uh, many times he speaks uh, with some uh, some uh, some criticism. If you take somebody who is not from the core of the establishment, not in public but in the Zoom talk, he will be much more free to talk. And I think that the, the, even the Russian academic community, even when they talk in public, what, what is their purpose? Their purpose is to convey how does, to try to, to explain to the outer community, how does the Russia, official Russia thinks, what does mm -hmm. it really expect? So they are much more, they have much more maneuvering room to interpret the Russian official position than Russian speaking in public. So okay, that's interesting. I, I, I kind of want to do two things with this um, conversation. And one, you mentioned 
the conference that you recently organized and, and the, the book uh, of, of articles that came out that you edited on Russia-Israel relations. So c- can we kind of have a, I want to say almost even a crash course on Russia-Israel relations? Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to ask, like, how do you, in, in being a Russia expert in a country of non-Russian experts, even, even though there are a lot of people well, that Although, I mean, don't, we have, a, you know, you, you know this, obviously, but uh, some of our listeners might not know. There are about a, mil, what, about a million people who speak Russian and have Russian citizenship, right, in this country. So they don't have Russian citizenship, okay. but they, there, are, there are about a million people who have, uh, who immigrated from the former Soviet Union, not only Russia, but right, from the former right, right. Soviet Union, and their uh, children. And the, in the 90s, there were about a million people came to Israel, but many of them have already died. <laughs> and, uh, and some of them, do, uh, the children, not necessarily speak Russian. So, so there is a lot of uh, uh, exaggeration many times about the numbers, for okay. instance, uh, for instance, uh, the the Russian ambassador speaking to in our conference, he said there are about two million Russian-speaking people in Israel. So everybody uh, takes the numbers. So about the Russian-Israeli uh, relations, uh, and I uh, another issue to to say about the citizenship. So when I came. Uh, to Israel, it was in 1989. From? Uh, as, as a child. From where? And uh, it was from Soviet Union, still. What, what city, what part? Ukraine, Odessa. From... Okay. So when the Soviet Union was in existence, at, at, at 1989, we have to pay the Soviet government some fee so that it will deprive us of our Soviet citizenship. So all of our family for about a week, when we left the Soviet Union until we can, came to Israel, we have uh, no citizenship whatsoever. So we have only one citizenship, the Israeli one. And, uh, and so on. And many of the people who came to Israel, they have only one citizenship, which is an Israeli one. Uh, some of them have a double citizenship, some of one of the former Soviet Union countries. Uh, I, so, but, yeah. No, I was going to say, I, I think I think what, what I would ask you is when you're speaking to a group of people or to to anybody who's not initiated into the history and heritage of Russia or the former Soviet Union, where do you begin? How do you begin to explain the world's, you know, geographically largest country and its, you know, immense cultural and, and political history? And to, its relation to Israel. I mean, where, yeah. Where do and you later, it's, it's relation yeah. to Israel. Of course, that, you know, the, the Russian history predates Israel by... Does it? By a lot. <laughs> so how do you start to, to get into that? And then, and then kind of, you know, you know, narratives that exist between Russia and the West and, and so on and so forth. So, so indeed, it is difficult. I think uh, last year I had to make a course on Russia. They asked me to do a course on Russian history in one hour. And I prepared myself and I was speaking and then somebody showed me we have five minutes left. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm only in Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> so it was difficult. So uh, indeed it is, uh, the Russians speak about themselves in the south, uh, southern years of history, about a little bit south, more than thousand years. Uh, when the Russia was crescent in, uh, at the end of the 10th century. Uh, and uh, I think that the important 
issue is that uh, in the last 300 years, uh, Russians, uh, Russian leadership, Russian elite uh, have uh, get used to look at themselves as one of the world powers, first one of the European world powers, and since the, uh, 1945, uh, one of the superpowers. So, and this uh, issue of being a world power, the greatness of Russia, uh, this is which uh, this is uh, an issue which is very important to the Russian elite, and it was uh, fed also to the Russian people. So, a regular so, so a regular Russian uh, citizen, he from the one hand he wants to improve his uh, life. Uh, quality. And uh, on the other hand, he, it is very important for him to, to look at his country as a, as a victorious country, as a great country. So, uh, so there's some trade-off uh, throughout the years. Uh, it is more important, I think, for the Russian leadership, the greatness of Russia, than the well-being of the, of the regular citizen. And uh, if... Uh, if they have to prioritize, so government first, citizen later. <laughs> you know, I was. Um, I, I want to tie in kind of two ideas here. So one is is um, um, my you know certainly in my my undergrad, but mostly my my master's studies, um, national security studies. We all read, of course, George Kennan and uh, uh, you know his famous uh, work on, on on Russia. And uh, one of the themes that kind of comes up is that. Um, no matter what kind of regime, and I think uh, Kissinger even, even touches on this in his new book, well, no matter what kind of regime Russia has had, uh, whether it was the Tsarists, whether it was the communists under the Soviet rule, or Putin now, um, there's always been one kind of characteristic, and that's the constant drive for expansion as a pillar of Russian um, national security. Um and it's funny, you just said right now that, you know, Russia always strives for greatness and, and they always tell their people their greatness. They see themselves as a superpower. I'll tie this into something else I was reading today. I was reading a, um, um, a Dvar Torah. I was reading, you know, kind of thoughts about the, the, the Torah portion from uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, Zal, um, about the Torah. And he, he did a comparison between the, the U.S. and the U.K. and, and what you know, if you look at what the statues in Washington versus the statues in, in London and um, the statues in Washington have the great American leaders and quotes from them. And if you go to the UK, you know, you'll see a statue of Churchill or you'll see a statue of, uh, you know, this uh, prime minister or king or general. But there's no quotes. There's no story. It's just and it's talking about different the different kinds of societies they are and that the US is one based on an ethic an ideal a story that everyone has to come around because there's no such there's no such thing as America if you're american it's cuz you buy into the story whereas if you're british there's that where, where does russia fall into that is russia like the uk in that we're russian we have this history we speak this language we're ethnically whatever and we just are or is there a greater story is there a greater kind of purpose that they tell themselves? I think that Russia has to reinvent itself. And, and if each generation uh, tries to reinterpret the history, especially uh, 
the previous regime, this, uh, this, the communist regime, it had to reinterpret it, uh, interpret, uh, the, the history of, of Russia and to, to adapt it to the communist dogma. And now, uh, in the last 30 years, we have a completely different uh, Russia because uh, the Russia in its borders, this, uh, that, that were established in 1991, were uh, completely new because uh, the Russian empire had much uh, bigger territories under its control. Uh, both in the Tsarist years and both in the Soviet times. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, Russia was uh, deprived of uh, enormous territories. It's still the biggest country in the world. But for instance, Russia now is 17 million square kilometers. The Soviet oh, Union was about 22 <laughs> million square kilometers, I think. But if uh, it's only Soviet Union, if you don't take into account the Eastern Europe, which was another belt of, uh, of uh, defense. So the, the new Russia, it, it must, uh, it's, it's, it's a new polity and it must explain what it is. What, what and, does, and what is uh, it? What is it? So, uh, and I think that's one of the problems of, uh, of this, of uh, the nineties was that it's attempt to uh, to to identify itself uh, as, a, as part of the West and to to put some new ideology uh, didn't succeed well and then and then came Mr. Putin and and there is no I think a coherent uh, ideology like the communist one but there are several uh, ideas of of the uh, Russian. Uh, his special purpose of Russian civilization, uh, special history that unites all the Russian people, because there are some hundred peoples uh, inside, some uh, hundred uh, my minorities in Russia. Uh, a quarter of the population are Muslims, and there are Buddhists and Jews. Uh, so uh, there is a uniqueness of Russian history, there is a unique, uniqueness of Russian role in the world stage. Uh, there is a, a, a Russian imperial tradition which, which, uh, which gives all the different people uh, which are part of the Russian uh, uh, empire their place. Some, some, it's some, some new reincarnation of the idea of, uh, of friendship between the people of the Soviet Union, uh, special place for the uh, Russian Orthodox Church and uh, <clears throat> and uh, and the Russia is a conservative society so uh, so uh, and and, uh, and in order to strengthen those different narratives uh, there is also this idea of Russia confronting the west uh, which is, I think it's, it's both the narrative, it both serves the purpose, and, but I think also that this is the way that the Russian uh, elite think about the West. So the, this idea of the confrontation of uh, the West deprived Russia of its uh, some exclusive privileges from the Soviet times, 
this is uh, this idea is uh, is real. It's not only narrative. Where, where does that come from? Where where that that con- that sense of confrontation with the West? I mean, and you see it in the U.S. too. Um, you know, Russia as the whether you call it the enemy or the um, the challenger or the rival, but there is that that certainly the concept adversary. Of the West. Adversary, yeah. I mean, depending where you are, there's an adversarial relationship. I think that that is. But innately, where does that come from? I think that there are several sources of this enmity. Uh, first, uh, this it's a maybe direct continuation of the, of the Cold War. So for 70 years, the West was the enemy. United States was the uh, the most important uh, enemy of the Soviet Union, and uh, especially in the security apparatus of uh, of Russia, which is uh, the, has developed from the Soviet one. Uh, the the suspicion, uh, it, ne- it, it never uh, disappeared. So th- there was a period of time, uh, President Putin calls it uh, recently when he tries to reinterpret the, the history. So he said in the 90s, we were at this, uh, at the, almost at the uh, state of uh, alliance with the West. So, so there, there, were, there were even ideas that Russia may, might join NATO or the bigger right. or the big European continent, Eurasian continent from Portugal to Vladivostok. So the are different it is, but it didn't happen. So uh, so this is one of the sources. And, uh, and there is a feeling during the uh, during the uh, recent 30 years of history that uh, this uh, unilateral moment of United States in 1991, uh, was uh, was not used uh, with a lot with a lot of courtesy towards Russia. So many people uh, try to compare Russia in some way to Weimar Republic. So uh, the big country which felt that it was uh, didn't de- was deprived of its uh, important place in the yeah. world affairs and was uh, was not re- treated. Rightly, well, look, there, I mean, there are several uh, steps of this. Uh, I, I, yeah. th- I think it's an interesting thing to note in terms of. I mean, you just said Russia feels like it was deprived of its rightful place in, in global affairs, and and then to parlay that with something you said earlier, which is the greatness of Russia as a concept. But but when you're looking on from the outside, you know, Russia truly did. And maybe this is something that the pe- the people of Russia, Russians themselves, expect of their country, but. There are many countries where if you talk to the people that live there, they'll say, you know, my country is a great country. It's, we're, you know, we're the best country. And, and it could be countries, you know, small like Nepal, or it could be, you know, South American countries or, or bigger countries like the United States or China or Russia. But, but Russia really did in many ways, you know, it's unique on the global, on the, on the global scale in that it did have programs or, 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 you know, feats of achievement that many countries in the world don't have the resources or the wherewithal or the uh, stamina to, to, to do, whether that's engineering and building railroads or if it's having a space program that you know, achieves in putting people into space and building space stations and, and being there throughout or, or even you know, the, the Soviet nuclear weapons program and being on the cutting edge of technology. Uh, and, and we can talk about you know, the virtue of, of some of these programs or how they would achieve them or whether or not they did, you did it ethically or rightly. But there are many countries who would say that they're, you know, a great country and it's like, okay, well, what have you done? And then there's countries like Russia where it's like, okay, there are tangible things you could point to and say, 
you know, you do kind of put your money where your mouth is when you're coming from a place and you're talking of greatness and then you do, you do these things that also are great in, the, in and of themselves. And I think that that also probably says something about, you know, the Russian people themselves and, and in what they expect of their country to be able to do on the world, on the, on the global stage. No? Well, well, I mean, that, I mean, that, that's a good point here. And that kind of leads me to a question is, is, I mean, living in Israel, I can tell you when interacting with the Russians I know and watching Russian culture on TV in the way we do, there's that sense that Russians are tougher and that it's like more of a grit your teeth and, and get it done and stop being so soft like the West it's culture. Um, is that true or is that just kind of like an image that we get of maybe the Russians who live here or of what we see in pop culture, you know, Rocky Four with Ivan Drago and this. It's like, like you know they're tough and then they're going to achieve and they're going to punch above their weight, even if they're not as materially or, or economically as advanced as the U S or whatever. Okay. So there are many points that can be raised. One, one issue uh, I will try, I will start from this one. And if I, uh, <laughs> if I run away from your question, please return me. So I, I, one article that I've written is, is Russia a paper tiger? So this is something that people ask, and this is that there is a, uh, some, uh, uh, this is an issue of how come Russia sees itself as a great power when it is a lightweight in the, from the economic sense. Right. And it is uh, rather uh, retard in many, uh, many aspects, uh, technologically wise. Even, uh, even the Soviet times, alongside this, uh, those grand projects that you've mentioned the regular citizens on the on the regular citizens have to uh, live a very simple life yeah. with, uh, with, uh, with deprived of many consumer goods and uh, you mean it you mean it wasn't you mean it wasn't the workers paradise no <laughs> <laughs> crap so they lied so so, so the the regular Russian have to uh, uh, encounter a lot of difficulties, and they, they have to they have a rough life, and therefore, indeed, they were not spoiled, and uh, they have to, uh, to 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 answer. Then uh, they are really uh, stubborn, and if they wanted to get something, they have to uh, to be inventive. So, but how come Russia is not a paper uh, tiger nowadays? Now, uh, even after this integration of Soviet Union, and, and this, I, I say that there are several aspects uh, to look at it. First, uh, the numbers sometimes lie. Many times people compare Russia to United States, to China, to European Union, and indeed uh, the. United States, China, European Union, they are plus minus $20 billion, uh, $20 trillion economy. Right. And Russia in, uh, in dollar values are about $2 billion. But, uh, but if you, the, the, the real comparison should be made not in dollars, but in uh, PPP, purchase power parity. Mm -hmm. there, right. uh, it will not change a lot. Russia is about four billion, four trillion dollars in PPP, uh, but uh, but being four trillion dollars in PPP, it is comparatively, I think it's five, fifth uh, world power uh, in PPP terms, uh, somewhere alongside Germany and uh, India. 
So uh, it is bigger than, in, in, than dollar wages. In, in uh, defense, for instance, uh, many people say Russia, Russian defense budget is about $60 billion. It, it is the size of Saudi Arabia or France. But uh, if uh, the people who study the defense issues in Russia, they say that if the, the real values in PPP, because Russia uh, produces its weapons and pays its soldiers and rubles, and they don't import anything or almost anything. So the, in PPP values, the Russian defense budget is about $200 billion. Uh, Russia is a continental power, therefore it doesn't have to uh, upkeep hundreds of uh, international bases. So it's very cheap for Russians to keep an army. Mm -hmm. So in, this, in, in military wise, Russia is the biggest conventional military power in the Eurasian continent, including the United States, because the United States doesn't have a lot of- How large is the, uh, how large is the military in, uh, in, in it's soldiers? It's about a million people, and it is quite trained because they are engaged in uh, two wars for six years. Sir years Syria and- and Ukraine. And Ukraine. And they, so they are they're constantly, they have a combat experience. Right. They've, uh, for more than 10 years, they've, uh, re, they were rearming. And they, uh, so the Russian weapons are not necessarily the best in the world, but despite the fact that, despite in several, in some categories, they are quite good, but maybe they, they don't have a good electronics industry, but, uh, but the quantities, uh, uh, do matters, and they uh, and they are not that bad. And if you compare to their peers, the European peers, uh, so uh, many times they don't uh, meet the NATO uh, level of expenditure. Their uh, armament programs uh, fall back. So in Europe, Russia is uh, is uh, by far the biggest conventional. Uh, but just out of curiosity, what technologies or what military technologies or uh, armaments do Russians do well? Nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the Russian Russian uh, they, do, they do everything. Quite, no, I mean, like you said, that there's good. a few that they would be like they would exceed it. Like they would. The Russians do everything, but they're they're. No, I mean, I, he he said in, in, mm. in particular, like there were technologies that yeah. Russia's are like average or poor, but there right. are ones like a couple that are like very. The most modern in the world or the best in the world so like what do they do with the so best the espresso machines are considered quite good russian submarines russian uh, air defenses are considered quite good s400 uh, uh, for instance and the russian electronic warfare is uh, is uh, is okay uh, they have some uh, uh, hyper uh, Hypersonic missiles, uh, hypersonic torpedoes. So, uh, in some areas, they are quite good. The, the problem is that during the Soviet times, they didn't put a lot of uh, effort into electronics. And if you don't have consumer electronics industry, it, uh, it is, you fall back also mm -hmm. with, uh, with military electronics. And, uh, and there, they have a lot of problems. But, uh, but let's move a little bit sure. uh, aside from the military field. I, I, I would say some, something else they also do really well is uh, not necessarily the, the, the arms, although I, I recall from, from World War II, for example, 
you know, while everyone was was making a lot of arms and the Russians were especially well known, especially with their tanks and their planes, were making a lot of very simple but effective yeah. pieces that 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 just worked. And, Guns and, and ammo. And uh, no, even the, even the tanks and, and and the airplanes, and they would just make a lot. And um, you know, kind of the, the Western approach was make them really really high quality, and the Russian was just make a lot of them. And that was uh, kind of a different approach. But something they also do well, and this is, I'd love to get into this at some point. You tell us when you think it fits into the conversation. If you recall, I invited you to speak to my think tank uh, a couple of years ago about Russia's um, cyber strategy. And I, and I will say, at least from an outsider uh, uh, you know, observer perspective, who does, you know, again, I'm not a Russia watcher, but I do watch foreign affairs and, and Middle East affairs. The Russians seem very adept at using what they have very well. And also, especially, um, they developed cyber capabilities, um, very advanced. I don't know about the, the actual hardware of the cyber capabilities or the software, I should say, but but the use of them seems to be very sophisticated and adept, if you want to get into that at some point. So, so we can speak about it now. So one of another uh, capability that brings, uh, it makes Russia important worldwide is it's, so maybe it's not uh, uh, the most sophisticated cyber uh, country but they can uh, they are innovative in the ways they employ uh, cyber capabilities so even this the, the simple capabilities as uh, ddos or the, the denial of service uh, or uh, attacking uh, attacking uh, some uh, emails. So we've seen several, many times we've seen examples uh, during the last decade when Russians uh, succeeded to, to, to make those simple uh, measures into some uh, strategic asset. For instance, uh, during the uh, their campaigns in Georgia, during the campaigns in Ukraine, uh, even uh, earlier with the Baltics, they were uh, doing, uh, ex exploiting this, uh, uh, this tool of denial of service uh, nationwide. So, uh, so instead of, uh, they, they, they studied quite well how the national infrastructure for country Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. What, what, what is denial of service? So it's they, they, to, to overload the capacity of, uh, of a computer system. So they, they, you make, um, put a lot of uh, pings by trying to access a computer system and it overloads and it doesn't work. For instance, mm -hmm. if you, a uh, million people try to enter Juanced uh, instantaneously, I suppose God they, they are welcome to. <laughs> if billion and if uh, if there is a billion uh, attempts to access some one site or a special or uh, if you if you study infrastructure, so you, they overload the uh, the uh, the capacity of the of the country. And, and it was uh, it was in Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine, and then uh, and it was innovative in the way. So when the Russians uh, did this, something which were the simple hackers were doing in, the, for instance, in an internet site, the Russians did it in they scaled it up into a country. Uh, so uh, 
another another uh, example was uh, with uh, something which called uh, NotPetya. Uh, NotPetya was an uh, cyber attack, uh, which it was meant to attack Ukrainian sites uh, in 197 in 2017. And, but uh, it was uh, it didn't work well, and it attacked not only Ukrainian sites; it was it attacked worldwide, and uh, it made the damage of about ten billion dollars. It is the most destructive uh, cyber attack worldwide. Wow. And and uh, the issue is that uh, the Russians didn't fear uh, to 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 fail uh, to 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 improvise in cyberspace. So, uh, so one of their capabilities is to to take uh, simple, sometimes uh, over-the-shelf uh, technologies, and uh, innovate, and to dare to do something which West didn't allow itself to do. Uh, for instance, to attack uh, civil infrastructure, to attack um, banking systems, and uh, and being. And daring to do it, they gave Russia some competitive advantage. So, but well, mm. another issue that makes Russia important, also despite it being not uh, an economic uh, uh, lightweight, it is uh, concentrating in its economy in the resources. And if you, if you look at the energy in oil and gas and some metals and diamonds. Right. Uh, there, Russia is uh, quite an important player, and it tries to to use its levers over uh, countries which are around it. And this uh, this is something that uh, presidential administration of uh, of Putin uh, tried to bring to some uh, level of uh, of art. Him personally uh, being uh, very involved in the way. The Russians are putting pressures through energy, uh, and uh, yeah. nowadays, so during the 2000-2010, uh, Putin's attempts to pressure Europe uh, through gas pipes. And well, I remember the, Germany especially was uh... Germany, but all the countries around, so uh, East uh, East Europe. It, it is very uh, dependent on Russia in, uh, in gas. So European Union has enacted the uh, uh, regulations mm. that made try to uh, uh, to decrease Russian power. So you, you cannot do both own the pipeline, sell the gas, have the gas stations, and, and goes to household. Uh, in the European Union, they try to uh, to regulate so the Russia will not be able to uh, to put a lot of pressure, and uh, and, uh, and Russia tries to fight it. But uh, these days, in the, in the last uh, five years since 1917, uh, there is another phenomena, which is not only European but is worldwide. It's the uh, there is a connection between Russia and OPEC, and there is an OPEC plus. Okay. So, OPEC, the, the uh, organization of petroleum exporting uh, countries, exporting exporting countries, countries in the Middle East. So, well, not just the Middle which East. Which the the oil exporters cartel, which was uh, for many years 
synonym for Arabs trying to control the oil market. But, uh, but nowadays, OPEC is controlled by Saudi Arabia and Russia. And there is a condominium of uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia in the energy market. And there, is a, and there is a joint interest for those two countries to keep the prices high, but not too high. Not too high so that the right. American uh, oil will not be able to... Uh, to, uh, to, to increase its share of the market. So, and this is uh, also an important issue. And, and from economic point of view, so Russia uh, is, uh, is able to exploit the several, several uh, areas where it's important to pressure it because the Russian state uh, controls most of the corporations in the country, about 70% of Russian economy is government controlled that way or other way. Uh, so it is, the go Russian government is able to, I will not say weaponize, but to leverage to, sure. to leverage any area of importance it has, whether Let it's me. weapon sales, export of atomic reactors, uh, these yeah. days, Russia is uh, uh, several years ago. Russia came back to be to dominate the grains exports in the world, uh, and etc. Daniel, let me ask you a question. Many people in the West don't understand the political uh, called structure or the power structure in Russia, and and can make uh, the assumption that it's a one man show that that it's kind of Putin's Russia and, and he's calling the shots on everything. How is Russian? How, how are Russians? Uh, how is Russia's politics structured? Is is it indeed a one man show, or is there a strong legislature that he has to you know be accounted to, accountable to, or you know how how are these decisions and how to leverage their resources being made and by whom? I think that uh, the question is in what field are we asking ourselves? So sure. if we, it's not. Uh, there is a, an idiom in Russian which is called uh, power vertical. So, uh, so it means that it's something that Putin was striving to, uh, to strengthen the, the ability of the federal center of Moscow to, uh, to be considered the, uh, the center of the political authority you know, in the regions. But it, it is important only to, if Moscow is considered, uh, if Moscow and Kremlin is considered uh, sovereign, then the region can have uh, a lot of autonomy. So, so many times, uh, for instance, uh, Chechnya, uh, the, the most uh, separate, uh, the, the region in, in, in Russia, which was uh, almost uh, most uh, separatistic uh, in its uh, uh, character is uh, as long as the president of Chechnya considers Putin as his suzerain, so it, he's a, he, he enjoys a lot of autonomy. On the federal level, if, if we deal with the foreign relations, especially dealing with the West, so it's not a one-man show, but uh, President Putin has a lot of uh, has a lot to say. 
Russia is called Russian Federation, right. uh, but it's one of the most unitary states in the world. It's not federalistic at all. It's uh, uh, it's uh, it's a unitary state. Uh, but but is, he, is, speak- is he beholden to anyone? Is does Putin have to you know take care of? Uh, does he have allies? Is there any kind of process of give and take between the different um, states or provinces or whatever they're called? Um, or, or, or like Benny's asking, I mean, is, is, is it, is he, a, is he a dictator or an authoritarian in that sense that it's a one man show, or is, is there a more complex structure we're, we're, we're not aware of? There is, a, there is a complex structure, but uh, in the, in his first days, he was, uh, you know, Putin was not uh, some charismatic leader that uh, came to power. They, they were. Uh, circles that put him uh, because he was uh, suitable, and it it was he was young, and he was uh, some capabilities, and he was put in the position of power, and he had to build himself throughout his first year. So in his and he looks and he year, looks good on a horse. Yeah, I was gonna, I was literally yeah. thinking the same thing. Yeah, he yeah. looks excellent on a horse. He looks good on a horse. What can we say? Yeah. He fights bears. <laughs> So there was a period of time that he was uh, maybe first among the equals. So there was uh, people who were around him and he had to consider them and he had to to, uh, take care of what they thought. Since 2014, he elevated himself above above all the others and uh, it is considered that he is the preeminent he had uh, so he is uh, he is this uh, historical figure uh, which is very important it's but it's a good example to look at Kazakhstan now we had in Kazakhstan a similar person which uh, was preeminent president Nazarbayev and even after when he uh, left his uh, position as a president, he renominated himself as the uh, head of the National Security Council, and he was the most important man in Kazakhstan. And uh, more, and more so, than Borat. And uh, and uh, despite the fact that Poor he country. had all, with this, Borat all, all of it organized, uh, last week he lost his power. Mm. So. I think that the, the, the situation in Russia is not similar. President Putin his, uh, holds firm to his power. People understand it. There is no alternative. And, and th- throughout 20 years of his reign, uh, a lot of effort is being made. So there is no alternative. Because if there is alternative, there is a, it, it, it hurts his power. Uh, but there are, uh, there are uh, many corporations, there are people who are close uh, to his circle. And he, despite the fact that he is a micromanager, he is considered micromanager, uh, Putin, he cannot do everything alone. So everything which is not in the core of his interests, uh, there are people who influence it. And, uh, and uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, things can be uh, done on the lower level. And there is a culture of uh, competition between different structures. There is a culture of 
trial and error. And as long as you, as long as you are not uh, against Putin, but you try to uh, explore possibilities to improve Russian position, or even if uh, you try to explore possibility to improve your, your, your positions for corruption, it is okay. As long as you are loyal, it is okay. Is, is that sort of a, uh, we'll call it a, a, a loyalty expectation, is that similar to the way that it was under former Russian leaders or even Soviet premiers? Or Tsars? Or is it unique to Putin in this place and in this time? So I think that the, the client uh, networks is it's, it's a universal issue. I think it was in the Tsarist uh, days, but, uh, I, but the... This, uh, for, for in the Russian history, I think it is unique. Uh, this this uh, constellation, because not uh, some, it's not aristocracy, it's not some uh, communist uh, ideological uh, network. It's uh, something else. Uh, this, there is a group of people who, uh, with personal relationship, uh, may having a lot of influence. If you look at the in a circle of Russian uh, political establishment, economic establishment, and if you try to dig, uh, dissect these, those networks, you find out that everything is personal. The, 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 these are people who studied with Mr. Putin, who played in some sports uh, club with Mr. Putin, who encountered him in his military or in KGB service. So uh, uh, it is very personal. Uh, there is another wave in about five years now uh, of uh, technocratization of Russian government. So uh, there is an understanding that those, uh, this uh, cohort of Putin's uh, friends is, is getting older. You need to make the uh, administration younger, to put some new blood, young blood into the system. Uh, and uh, there is a lot of uh, KPIs, uh, 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 how is it called? called? Uh, key, key performance uh, indicators. Key performance. So, so there is a deputy head of Russian administration. His name is uh, Kirienko. He was former uh, Prime Minister in the Yeltsin times, and uh, then he was head of Rosatom, Russian Atomic Energy uh, Company, and he is uh, uh, in charge of uh, those programs of bringing new blood. There are uh, uh, there are competitions of young professionals about 40, 50 years old have proved themselves. They have to uh, to uh, to prove their capability and their that they are uh, also politically uh, sensitive, mm. and if they are if they are okay, they can get to the to be promoted to be a government, a minister, deputy minister, head of the federal agency, uh, and there is now uh, interesting uh, dynamics of the old Putin's elite and the new technocrats uh, uh, coming together. Sometimes having uh, struggles, sometimes 
cooperating. Does he have any fear that somebody's going to try to rise up and take over? I, I thought you were going to ask if he has any friends. <laughs> so, uh, I see. Or is he still, or is he still, is he not that old? Uh, he's not that old. He's not senilic, but uh, he's, he holds his cards very close to his chest. His, his bare chest on horseback, yes. Uh, even when he was younger, if, he, if he's, it's a, the Russian political commentators are preoccupied what's going to be after. What's going to yeah, be what after. is going to be so after? Even, so, but even, even after his first term, if he falls off the horse. 2000, 2004. So there was what's going to be after Putin, and the, who, and there was a lot of uh, the boss uh, of uh, uh, of names. Who's there was a long row of names of of Putin's successors, and out of nowhere, President Medvedev appeared. Right. So. And uh, and uh, and I think that people are joking that the criteria for Russian uh, prime minister is to be uh, smaller than Putin. He's not high high man and no. less charismatic. So to have to have to to lack any political ambition. So uh, the current uh, prime minister. Uh, Mishustin is uh, he's uh, considered not very charismatic. He's a technocrat. For instance, from Russian why it is important because from uh, from the point of view of Russian constitution, prime minister succeeds the presidency uh, president in any expediency. So current it, it, one, he's uh, not very high. I'm not sure that he. I, I have a, I have a question, then. I have a yeah. question. Is there yeah. something in in Russian culture? that tends to authoritarian styles of rule? Is it maybe something that's happening all over the world? But I mean, you see in other countries, I guess Russia never really had a democratic tradition where where Western Europe and, and uh, North America went into, into democracies and in places all over East Asia. But is was there ever any kind of democratic bent? Do you see Russia ever becoming more democratic in that sense? Or is there, you know... What do, how how would you rate kind of public opinion on the question of of do we want democracy or are we happy with having capable you know authoritarian type rule if if they are indeed capable and successful? So uh, the indeed there was no 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 uh, tradition of democracy. There was uh, some movement towards uh, constitutional monarchy at the end of these Tsarist days, and they all of a sudden it came to the communist regime, the communist dictatura. And the 10 years of uh, 1991, uh, 1999, uh, were troubled years. So it, it began with perestroika, so the, about 15 years of window of democracy for mm -hmm. Russia. Right. Uh, and uh, and from the one point of view, they, it, it went very fast. And Russia, Democrat, Soviet Union, and then Russia democratized very, very fast. And the people who were in charge of the country, in some ways, were uh, of democratic orientation. 
but the uh, economic processes, the social processes, the upheaval, the disorder, the chaos uh, that, uh, that uh, went hand in hand with this democratization uh, brought in the, I think, in the larger part of the of Russian public, the feeling that uh, democracy and liberalization uh, brought uh, disorder. So, and uh, when Putin came to power, these people went to, to say that the refrigerator had won the television. So the television is a symbol of free speech, and the refrigerator as the uh, of well-being. So when Putin came to power, uh, the oil went up. There was improvement of the stability of the Russian uh, economy, the Russian citizens' uh, quality of life improved, and they were ready to trade the freedom of speech and personal uh, liberties for the refrigerator. Uh, I, th I think that there is a, one, of, one of the problems is that uh, there is a, there are, I, I suppose, tens of millions of people in Russia which are liberal or would like to go west, as Petty yeah. Boys were singing, uh, to, for Russia to take another course. That, that's the whole deal with like Alexei Navalny and... Yes, so there's a Navalny and this is an, there is an opposition in exile. And the question is, uh, what is Russia? What is And uh, when we speak of Russia, we make some uh, approximation because it's, uh, it's, there is no one Russia. And, uh, and, and everyone try to represent Russia, where Russia should go, where Russia should be. I think that in the 90s, there was a window of opportunities, it went lost. And there was a problem, how can we change the course of the events today? Uh, people say that every change of regime in Russia is, uh, uh, go, goes uh, with a lot of bloodshed. So, and when is, uh, what is regime in Russia? They say every new ruler is a regime change. So. Yeah. Yeltsin was a regime, Putin is a regime. Uh, so it's, it's, it's messy uh, and we don't need it, right? right yeah. So yeah, and, and when, when people speak about what's going to be after Putin, when people try to build different scenarios, so some of the scenarios are really bad uh, for, for, with a lot of uh, power struggles and, uh, and, uh, and the instability and... Uh, you, you ask how, how come the, does Russia have to be autocratic? The problem is that uh, what we were, we were speaking, what is Russia? So if, uh, if you would like to stick to the Russian borders as they are today, to keep all of those uh, different territories conquered throughout the centuries together, the Tatars and the Chechens and the Russians and the Burats who, who are Buddhist and the Siberians. So if you want to take all those together, uh, have to, uh, you have to uh, many times uh, to put a lot of effort to, to stop the centrifugal uh, tendencies each of them has. So. Mm. Each people have its uh, own identity. Uh, we've seen at the end of the Soviet Union, and when the central power uh, have loosened its grip, 
the different people started to, right. to fight each other. I, so, I want to ask one so question. I will, I will, I will on this, and this, uh, at least this is the historical lesson Putin and his uh, survivors uh, have learned. So if you have to keep strong, if you want to keep this country together. I have to ask one question. I know Dan wants to move to, to, to a different area here, and, yeah. and we'll get to that. I have to just ask one question, though. If you're looking at things from sort of like a macro you know, viewpoint from above, if you look at the United States, and, and, and it's a country that I'm from and Dan's from, and it's a place of you know, great geographical reach and diversity. It's, it's a continent-wide country, just like, just like Russia. You could say in many ways that the emergence of American federal democracy in, in one way or another was a way to manage resources across the population distributed over a large amount of territory, in that certain powers were given to state governments in order to be semi-sovereign over their own affairs to take care of people in the immediate needs of today. Given the fact that Russia is so extensively large and in many places very, very sparsely populated, how does having a power center in the far west of the country deal with the immediate needs over time of people that live in such a large geographical place? I mean, you literally have Russian cities in the far east that are eight hour or nine hour flight from Moscow, which is essentially it's like flying from Tel Aviv to New York. And and you're in the same country. I mean, how do you how do you justify having, you know, if you're if you're living in that part of the country, how do you say, you know, I've I have more in common with 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 you know with China going on in, Korea. In, in in Moscow than I do with what's going on, you know, thirty kilometers away across the border in China. And how do they manage that? So it's an issue of history. It's a, it's the historical past of Russia was completely different than that of United States. United States was, I think it was the federalization was the, it, uh, it developed. So United States became more centralized throughout the century. Russia was centralized since the beginning. So since the beginning, the, the, the imperial center tried not to let the, uh, the governor rates uh, too much power, and uh, and to change the governments, uh, to governors, and uh, to, uh, to to make sure that the population uh, is uh, is faithful, is loyal to the to the center. So there are many uh, many techniques to put different uh, supervisory supervisory organs uh, to the way the communication works. So. In the Soviet Union, if you wanted to go from Vladivostok to Japan, you had to fly to Moscow <laughs> and, then, and then to Japan because you don't didn't have any direct flight. If you I, wanted uh, to, for, for, to call, for for listeners who don't know Russian geography, that's like saying I had to go. You know, I, I needed to go from uh, from I don't know Israel to Dubai, but you had to fly to New York to get there. Or, or even crazier, I had to go from New York to Washington, and so I had to fly through you know, Paris, London to do it. You know, it's like. And the same with the communication. You have to phone to Tokyo from Vladivostok. You will have to go to, to Moscow, and from Moscow, the, your your phone will be connected to Japan. So the 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 the, the community the. Infrastructure was organized that way, so the 
industry was constructed the same way. I, I, so I have one. Sure. I have one last question on kind of Russia on its own, and then I want to take. I want to go from there into Russia in the Middle East and Russia and Israel. Um, you, you mentioned at the very beginning of your comments that in the it, it, when Russia has to decide between its strength as a nation versus the comfort of its citizenry, it, it tends to choose its strength as a nation. So it's going to get to space, it's going to build a nuclear program, it's going to have the best uh, athletic teams, and, and the people will you know, li- live less comfortable lives in order to achieve that. And we just finished speaking about the, you know, whether Russia is is destined to always have kind of a, a an authoritarian appeal, or can it ever be a democracy? So, so let me ask you kind of a um, a merger of of these two questions on the grand scale. And that's, you know, um, on this show, maybe you're not aware, we talk a lot about uh, the UAE because over the last year I've been involved in that, and Benny just came back from the UAE and. All our friends, and we've had a couple episodes based on, on that, and, and they have a, a different model than, than we do here in Israel or, or in the United States or in, in Western Europe, and that's people have very nice lives, um, and, and they're happy with kind of having a, we'll call it a benevolent autocracy um, in the UAE, can maybe kind of like the Singapore model. With all the natural resources that Russia has, you know, some of the greatest oil, gas, mineral um, reserves in the world. It, seem, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, maybe I am, that why don't they take all of these incredible natural resources and, okay, they'll be authoritarian, but let's make the lives of our citizens incredibly comfortable rather than it seems kind of always meddling in foreign affairs and and something that you know uh we've talked about on this show before and i've dealt with in some of my professional contexts is for example russian meddling in american elections or in other countries elections or russia in syria or russia in uh, north africa or kind of other conflicts why and maybe they're not connected but why would you as a country if you have all these unbelievable access to to natural wealth why wouldn't it be, okay, you know what? Make our lives better. You have your power. You get to be authoritarian, but, but make our lives incredibly better. And it seems, it seems that as economically, it hasn't done that. It, you know, the people aren't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I've never actually been to Russia, but it seems to me it's not quite a first world country, certainly outside of the main cities. And, and you know, why would you take those natural resources and divert them to constantly maybe meddling in other countries' affairs or what have you, instead of saying, let's make our citizens the most comfortable, well-educated, well-taken-care-of, best health care, whatever, in the world like they're trying to do, let's say, in the Gulf. And and if I've gotten that totally wrong from a perspective point of view, then please you know, sort that out for me. I think that even in the UAE doesn't work that well uh, because in UAE there are, there are one million Citizens, sure. and there are 10, sure. 10 million uh, people who serve them, right. which are like the regular Russians, I will say. So mm. also in Russia, there is a, this 10% uh, of the society which live well, and in in, in uh, median, uh, or not median, in, uh, uh, Russian, uh, I think that per capita, GDP is uh, like the lower end of the EU. 
in uh, in average in average but uh, it's it's one of the most unequal uh, countries in the world so there is a this uh, tradition that the russian simple citizens they suffer there's a tradition of corruption mm. and uh, if you if you look at the russian const- constitution so it says it says what you say it could be uh, forefather of the russian constitution said that the main purpose of the russian state is to, to to take care of the russian citizens and to work for their well-being but uh, but there's a gap between what the constitution says and the real the real life and uh, and uh, i think that the the, the reason why uh, why it doesn't work because russia is not singapore in the scale uh, and because of the corruption, I would say. So I want to I want to take this and um, kind of let's transition to Russia and the Middle East. Uh, can you give us an overview of first of all before why what Russia what and where Russia is in the Middle East? What's it doing in the Middle East and where is it in the Middle East? Of course, we and how long has it been involved in the Middle East? So uh, if we zoom out. In the map, as we've mentioned, and this is what Russians say that the uh, Middle East is uh, much closer to Moscow than Vladivostok. Uh, so, uh, so the Russians uh, during my uh, uh, during this conference that we've organized in INSS, so we try to uh, uh, to promote it, and I put a video of Efraim Alevi, the former head of the Mossad. Uh, who, whom I interviewed for for our book, and uh, he was during the Soviet times. He was the uh, POC vis-à-vis the Soviet Union, the Mossad. Mm. Uh, when when Soviet Union and Israel didn't have uh, uh, diplomatic relations, so uh, there was this uh, uh, connection between uh, the Mossad and. Uh, uh, the Soviet authorities and the Soviet, his Soviet vis-a-vis, uh, as they call it in Russia, was Yevgeny Primakov, who was then uh, somebody who was a semi-academician, semi-journalist. Uh, people said that he was belonging to the secret service. Later on, he became the head of the Russian, Russia, the head of uh, uh, Russian external intelligence service and prime foreign minister and prime minister. So, so Efraim Alevi told that uh, about 1974, I think, Primakov came to Israel and uh, Efraim Alevi uh, made him meet uh, Prime Minister Rabin. And uh, they, and, and Rabin was not uh, fond of the Soviet role in the Middle East. And he said uh, some uh, nasty things to, to Primakov in his eyes and then Efraim Alevi says that we we left Jerusalem by car and in Sharagai, which is uh, uh, after the Jerusalem mountains, and uh, the the car the engine broke down and the car ended and it was hot, and they started to talk and uh, Primakov was uh, said to him, "You must understand, we are part of the Middle East and we are no, we are never we, we will never." 
leave Middle East because we are part of the Middle East. And he struck the car and, the, and, he, and he hurt his hand <laughs> and the blood, uh, and the blood uh, was uh, uh, get out of his hand. So uh, this is the way they look at it. In the Soviet times and the Tsar times, they, they look at themselves as part of the Middle East. Why? How? How does Russia because, see itself as part of the Middle because, East? Right, because Russia is so big. So its neighbors were the Persian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. And even in the Soviet times, Iran and Turkey were their neighbors. And, uh, and uh, during the Soviet times, when the Soviet Union became a world superpower, so the Middle East was used as its backyard because the uh, American uh, fleet, NATO fleet in the Mediterranean threatened Soviet Union uh, with nuclear weapons, and therefore, in the Soviet in the Soviet times, they have had to build this uh, Mediterranean flotilla in order to uh, dis- uh, distract the NATO fleet and to uh, uh, for the for the case of nuclear war. So, so one of the uh, guiding ideas of the Russians during the Cold War was that they needed to bases in the Mediterranean. They tried to gamble on the Egyptians, didn't work. They tried to gamble on the Syrians, it didn't work well, because even Assad, the older, didn't give them really the base. And uh, in these days, uh, in the last seven years, uh, Russians succeeded to build the Mediterranean base and they continue to think the same way uh, the Soviets uh, thought, because they still think in the equations of uh, strategic stability, mm-hmm. the equi- uh, equilibrium of uh, power with the with NATO, with the West, they need uh, to be uh, militarily present in the Mediterranean with their fleet, with the capability to deploy uh, strategic bombers in order to deflect uh, some pressures from the NATO's east uh, southern flank. Can, can you explain can you explain to us um, w- why did the Soviet Union first of all not recognize or not have diplomatic relations I think it was the first country to actually recognize Israel but why did it not have diplomatic relations with Israel and why did it side with with uh, the Arab states um, during most of the Soviet Union and Israel's history? So uh, in the 47, 48, the Soviets did uh, support the uh, establishment of the state of Israel. And right. they are very, uh, today, the Russians are very proud of it. They, they are proud that uh, their, uh, their voice was very important to make, uh, to, to assure the the vote in the uh, uh, General Assembly of the United Nations to, to get the majority because the Soviets used uh, the voice of, uh, so of the, have several voices the, uh, there. And uh, they were very proud that they recognized Israel before the United States. It's, they say that they are the first country to recognize Israel. Uh, my friends uh, remind me that Guatemala was the first, but uh, they, they were before the United States, uh, at least. And, uh, and uh, there is also a historical issue that during the War of Independence, there was uh, the Czech deal. Uh, right, in, the, the Czech arms. The, the Czech arms that helped 
helps the Israel uh, to to prevail. And uh, when I've during our conference in the, the book, I've written uh, that uh, it was because of the Soviet consent that the Czechs would say they sell the weapons, and uh, many is, Israeli historians tell this is this uh, this story. But somebody uh, just yesterday told me that uh, the Czechs did it despite the Soviets. Oh, interesting. Even, uh, so I, I have to to dive into this uh, into history, but it's uh, but but uh, at least in Israel the the general belief is uh, that, uh, that the Soviets helped both in the vote and both with the weapons. But very soon, uh, and why why did the Soviets help Israel? Because uh, they wanted to undermine the British Empire. Mm. So Israel was under the British mandate. One of the ways to undermine the British Empire was to support different uh, national movements worldwide. So Israel was one of the national movements. Also, there, were, there was some belief because of the socialistic uh, tendencies in the young Israel that it might be some... Uh, uh, some ally, but uh, very soon Ben Gurion decided that uh, Israel will, will put its fate with the United States, and uh, very soon the uh, the relationship between Soviet Union and Israel uh, became rocky. Even before the 1967, the the relationship was uh, the diplomatic relations were. Uh, uh, abolished by the Soviets uh, in '67 uh, because the Israel was uh, uh, prevailing. But even beforehand, uh, there was uh, an instance of several months in 1953 uh, that Soviet Union for several months uh, called the ambassador back because. Uh, uh, right-wing Israelis, uh, some uh, they've blown up the Soviet representative uh, representation in Tel Aviv. There was a terrorist act against the Soviets mm. by the Jews. So the Soviets were uh, very a terrorist attack. Uh, yeah, really. The, there is a very nice building in Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv, which where the Soviet representations. Uh, presentations uh, was, and uh, in 1953 uh, there was a bomb put by the uh, Israelis, uh, by, by the Jews, and the Soviets were annoyed, and they for several months uh, abolished diplomatic relations. And after Stalin, and after Stalin died, uh, they were restored. Is is it uh, true? I I read uh, I, I think it, I think it was a podcast I heard of a book that came out by an Israeli scholar who was looking at uh i i want to say maybe the sinai campaign um one of israel's wars against egypt in which israel actually the idf actually fought against russian troops in egypt yeah it's it's, it wasn't the war of attrition the war the war have you heard this yes like my, I, I was, my mind was blown that israeli troops had actually fought against russian troops at one point in our history so, so to, we'll come to it in a, in a minute. So fast forward. So in '56, uh, the Soviets supported uh, the Arabs. They the, the, the same. I think it almost in 
even before in 55, I think that the Czechs sold weapons to Nasser and the 56 when, uh, when uh, Israel together with France and the UK uh, attacked Israel, uh, attacked Egypt, the Soviet uh, made an ultimatum to Ben-Gurion and almost they've uh, almost threatened to use nuclear weapons. The, the, the wording of, of the, there was a letter from uh, Soviet Prime Minister Kosygin to Ben-Gurion. He said that uh, this, the Israeli government plays with the fate of its uh, of the very existence of the state of Israel, which is some wording with existence, uh, which uh, which uh, goes with the phraseology of nuclear threats. Right. So Israel retreated. Uh, the, the relationship was rocky. In 1967, the Soviets uh, completely to, uh, supported the Arabs. And after this, the Six-Day War, after they abolished uh, uh, the diplomatic relations, uh, they started to uh, the rearmament of the Egyptian army. And, uh, and after the, if beforehand, they tried to make some balance. They were generally... For the uh, for the Russians uh, for the Arabs and against Israel even before the 67, but after 67, they are completely unbalanced. They are fully for the Arabs, and in 1969-1970 there was a Soviet air defense division. And air defense in Soviet Union is both uh, uh, anti-aircraft missiles and uh, aircraft. Because right. uh, so they deployed Soviet dif- division in in uh, in the Egyptian bank of the Suez Canal, uh, but it was undercover. So the Soviets will not announce we are deploying the deniability that they were there. Uh, yeah. yeah, they didn't announce they deploying uh, some ten thousand troops in Egypt, but just put it there, and uh, and the Israelis will look at it as a threat. And uh, there were several incidents where they've attacked them. And the, the, the main incident that, uh, that contributed to the end of the uh, war of attrition was, uh, the, uh, was the fight between the Israeli aircraft and the Soviet MiGs. And there were some uh, several mm. Soviet MiGs being downed by the Israeli uh, planes. Uh, and um, it's very interesting that the Soviets, uh, the, the Russians remember it. Uh, until this uh, very day, several uh, weeks ago, I was talking to some uh, uh, Russian former diplomat who was in uh, he, he was uh, a young diplomat in Egypt in these days, and uh, after he and uh, forty years have passed since. 50 years have passed since, uh, and he told me that when the Russians were thinking about the, the mandate, the, the, in the, the Russian parliament have to give the mandate for the Russian army uh, to, uh, for, to, to engage in, uh, in Syria, for military operation in Syria. And when they formalized the mandate of Syria, he, he said to me that they remembered that they came to to fight Israel because uh, the army was looking at, uh, at that time at their mandate too widely. So they defined the mandate anti-terrorist operation uh, 
to make sure that the army is not going to fight Israel or other countries, but only to fight terrorists. And so it's not precisely what the Russian army does in Syria, uh, but, uh, but I think that it, it, it explains that they do remember their historical failures and have their lessons learned. Hmm. What, what is their approach today? Um, so you just said 30 years of Russia-Israel relations, so 1991, I guess, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia, the Russian Federation and Israel, established ties. How would you characterize um, Russia-Israel? You know what, before we get into that question, let's kind of wrap up with the Middle East broadly, and then I want to get into Israel. How would you characterize then Russia's role today in the Middle East? In my in my lectures, when I you know explain kind of the new Middle East, the the one dynamic I, I I like to point out again, usually my audiences tend to be American audiences, and that's as the the U.S. was um, the lone superpower from the fall of the Soviet Union until recently, and um, it's made a decision to withdraw um, both Democratic and Republican. Uh, administrations have made a decision to withdraw from an active military role in the Middle East. And one of the uh, kind of results of that has been Russia trying to increase its its uh, strength, its strength, presence. its presence yeah, on, on the on the regional international stage by taking the place kind of on the cheap. And I say I say this to Russia's credit doing, you know, uh, using the, the more limited capabilities it has, but much more smartly than the U.S. does. And filling in that kind of vacuum where, where the U.S. Um, would have done that maybe 10, 20 years prior. But so we, we, you know, that's kind of how I characterize it. But how does Russia see its own role in the Middle East and why does it do what it does? So indeed in the 90s, the Russians uh, decreased their activities, their external uh, activities in the Middle East. As uh, alongside other areas, and uh, but even at the end of the 90s, they tried. They understood that they have to uh, reassert themselves, but uh, they didn't have a lot of capabilities. And still, the United States was much, much more dominant here. And uh, uh, but there is a process since the late 90s that the Russians are trying to uh, restore their status in the Middle East. I think that one issue uh, which is important, so Russians are ambitious, but they are, the fall of Soviet Union made them extremely aware to their weaknesses and capabilities. And they, and they aspire for better, but they don't, uh, for instance, they don't aspire for, to, uh, to become a regional policemen instead of the United States. Is there, is, there, is there a fear that, is there a fear in Russia that Russia could get bogged down to play that role in the Middle East, given that there's no one else to do it? And, and with the background so, of Afghanistan in the 80s, maybe? Indeed, it's a, so Afghanistan is a Soviet uh, uh, heritage. Uh, one of the traumas of the Soviet Union, one of the traumas of the, uh, in the collective memory of, this, of the Soviet people, the Russian people, that uh, the Russian citizen didn't live well and the empire collapsed because it was overspread worldwide 
it was helping all over the world uh, to support different regimes and they are not willing to support new regimes. So, so would, they would like to, uh, to further Russian interests and not to, uh, to export some kind of uh, ideology. So uh, there is a fear, for instance, when the Russians came to Syria, there was a fear that Russia will uh, get uh, bogged down the Syrian swamp. And, and then, then first they constantly were speaking, we are coming for a very limited operation, limited goals. And then, uh, so the, the official operations, for instance, started in uh, 30th of September, 2015. In March 16, Putin have announced the operation is over. Did he do it from the, the deck of an aircraft carrier with a big banner above that's admission accomplished? No, <laughs> no. But, uh, but here the mission accomplished, we have won, and we are now turning to peace building. So, and I think that so, so it didn't change a lot the Russian military role in Syria uh, at that time, because although some aircrafts came back to to Russia afterwards, some of them came uh, came back to Syria, and Russia still involved in the military campaign in Syria. But uh, but it's important for uh, I think for Putin to say to the Russian citizens. It is limited. Uh, we don't uh, we don't uh, get bogged there, and it was also very important to keep the uh, scale of the casualties very low. Right. And therefore, for instance, uh, one of the tools the Russians uh, employed there was the uh, PMCs, uh, uh, private military uh, private military companies, yes. uh, so that the victim count. Will not be the official uh, Russian yeah. soldiers, but uh, somebody I, I, else. I was going to ask you about the Wagner Group. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so first of all, so Russia is for the Russians, uh, and uh, there, there is there is a proverb uh, in Russian that Russia has it. Uh, it is uh, this quote of Russian Tsar Alexander the. Third, I think he said Russia has no allies, but its enemy, but its army and its fleet. So today they say it's uh, its army, its uh, army and its uh, and its fleet, and its uh, VKS, which is its air force. But uh, Russia is uh, is in a state of mind of strategic loneliness. So Russia don't, doesn't really have any allies. That's sad. And, uh, that's sad. <laughs> They're very lonely. They're very lonely. It's. I think it's. It's. It's similar, little bit to China. Uh, it, it acts. It acts differently. So it has. But it has a lot of partnership, limited partnership. And if you look at Russia with very different countries in the with in the Middle East, it identifies which each country. What are the strategic areas of common interest that uh, Russia can build on? And it tries to promote those areas of common interest and not to do uh, something much bigger. So Russia understands that the United States is still the most important actor in the Middle East. It, it enjoys the... Uh, the 
I think it I is. Think so, uh, yeah, I the, think the, everybody understands it, but uh, the, but the feeling is that the feeling is that the the dynamics is that United States looks eastward, despite being the most important, it is on its way out. Right. And Russia, the optics is that it is on its way in. So it it, it enjoys this optics of uh, you know. Uh, it, and uh, what was that was that famous British saying, right? This it's kind of reminds me that the Britain doesn't have eternal friends or enemies, only eternal interests, right? You know, it's kind of one of if one you of say these, so. I, I didn't make it. I up. don't know. <laughs> I was gonna say, but uh, you you had a good question. Well, I was. I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, Russia definitely chose a very if if the goal was not to get bogged down in a sticky situation they definitely chose a, a great country to try to do that because it seems that there's so many different players that are of of you know some sort of an interest in Syria or in, in the region if you just want to start small you could, you could look at all the different jihadi groups that operate in Syria the Syrian regime itself and then of course you know the uh, the elephant in the in the room which is Iran and Iran's vested interests aims desires goals and and, and, and whatnot to to be the the hegemon the the the, the dominant player in in the region and, and we can get and into Syria, the, in Syria of course we can get into the concept of the Shia crescent and, and all these things I, I mean I'd like to know how do Russians you know how, do, how does Russia view Iran is it is it an ally in the Middle East is it somebody that's like yeah these guys are kind of annoying but we have to deal with them because they're here and and and, and then maybe that's a good transition to get into like how how Russia deals you know allows Israel to operate in the sphere. So, so when I speak about Russia and Iran, uh, there was uh, 500 years of relationship right. between Russia and Iran. And I say this 500 years of hostility because uh, in the Iranian national consciousness, uh, Russia is an enemy because Russian empire encroached the lands of the Persian empire. They just can't and let even, it go. Russia, Russia overthrew... When was that? When did Russia invade Iran and overthrow and Russia? In the, only in the 20th century, yeah. I think, the Russia some three times invaded Iran, uh, and uh, so and uh, I think that they they wanted they, they wanted cheap carpets. But the U.S. is the great Satan. I just want to point that the U.S. is the great <laughs> Satan, but Russia literally invaded and overthrew Iran three times. I'm just going to put that there. <laughs> I think that the, the Iranians at the beginning. Of, uh, of the Islamic Republic, they were talking about two evil empires, okay. the Soviet and the... So, uh, but then when Soviet Union uh, disintegrated, uh, it was an opportunity for, for the Iranians. Uh, so, because there were, uh, there were a lot of weaponry and cheap technologies that they could uh, get. Uh, which were not possible during the Soviet times because the export control regimes. And uh, so for Soviet Union, it, uh, for, for, for young Russia in the 90s, for instance, Iran was an opportunity. For, it, it inherited the capability of Soviet Union to, to deal the, what the uh, United States would call the pariah state. So Russia tried to build itself, even the young Russia, as a bridge between the prior state Iran and the United States. And to, in order to do it, it was, it had to, uh, not, not only had to, it's its, it's, it's a purpose to, uh, to, to be of importance to Iran through 
weapons uh, through uh, the Boucher atomic reactor deal uh, through uh, negotiating. So, uh, so Iran for Russia is uh, nowadays is both an opportunity and a threat. Why it is uh, today opportunity and a threat? Uh, Russia has a lot of uh, Muslims in it. Throughout uh, the nobody knows for sure. There are numbers between 15 and 25 million Muslims, and uh, all of them, almost all of them, are Sunnis. So uh, this is an issue of concern for Russia. So uh, Russia uh, would not like to be pro-Shiite because uh, Russia would like good relations with Sunni countries. Uh, and this is one factor to consider. Iran is a neighbor. Many countries neighboring both Russia and Iran are countries which are playground for strategic competition between, for influence. In the Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Caspian Sea, Afghanistan, uh, Central Asian countries, all of those countries uh, oh, and even Syria now, the Middle East, those are areas where both Russia and Iran compete for influence. Uh, and they also compete in the energy because uh, when Iran is not under sanctions, it sells oil. And if another actor sells oil, it brings oil down. So Russia uh, earns when Iran is under sections. On the other hand, uh, this is most important. The common agenda is against the West. Both, the, both Iran and Russia are very anti-Western and, uh, and uh, undermining or weakening American positions in the Middle East or in the, on the areas of joint interest for them is very important. Therefore, uh, this is the uh, common ground. And in Syria, this common ground uh, came forth because uh, both countries wanted to uh, support Assad regime from different uh, uh, goals. For Russia, Assad regime secures the, the Russian foothold in the Middle East because Assad, when he was at his weakest in 2015, 2016, he leased two military bases to Russian Federation for 49 years and 25 years of possible extension. So Russians good play... Good deal, huh? That's a good real estate deal. So, the century. <laughs> so, uh, and they were leased for free. Uh, oh, that's even a oh, better deal. It's like the it's, art of the deal. This yeah. is to explain the Russian, why Russian military is uh, much more lean than the American. Because when the Americans lease a base, they pay a lot they, of money for it. <laughs> they pay a lot of money. They pay a lot of money. contracts. Russian uh, did it for uh, for free, and uh, and Assad regime secures those bases. Uh, and it is important for him to continue. And therefore, the Russians stick with Assad regime. Iranians, uh, well, uh, they need Assad for other purposes because they need uh, him to be anti-Western, uh, to be a bridge to Lebanon. But what, how, does it, how does it work when, um, you know, Israel has its conflict with Syria, 
Iran and Hezbollah in Syrian territory, um, according to two foreign press reports. Israel regularly strikes uh, those kind of targets. Not in necessarily Syria. foreign only. I mean, yeah, no, Netanyahu admits it, of course. Um, but but Russia is still a dominant uh, foreign and military power there. So how do, how does Russia strike that balance over its control um, and what Iran is trying to do, and what's the balance with Iran in Russia? Where where does you know, is there any time when Russia signals or tells the Iranians, hey, back down, we're here, this is our territory, is, is you know, how, how does that dynamic work? So when we speak about the interests of Israel with Iran, for instance, we, we mainly divide those for regional influence and the nuclear file. So in nuclear file, Russia is, uh, as a nuclear power, is against <laughs> Iran having nuclear weapons because... Uh, because of the NPT regime and etc. Because, uh, but uh, but practically, Russia uh, would not like Iran uh, to have a nuclear weapons because they understand that nuclear Iran, which would be much more ambitious, also in their vicinity. So they would they don't need it. So I don't think that they look at this uh, this issue as, as an existential problem as Israel does, because Russia have many nuclear right. neighbors, but they, uh, if in, in, a, in a perfect world, world, they would not like to, Iran to have nuclear weapons, and therefore there is a common ground between uh, Russia and other Western part, mm-hmm. parties to the ne- negotiations. Russia is, uh, unlike Soviet Union, is speaking with and have relations with all the actors in the Middle East, and have good relations with Israel. Therefore, Russians say that they uh, do not support the Iranian uh, animosity towards Israel. They, in parallel, they say to Israel that you are too exaggerating the Iranian threat and you should talk to the Iranians because they are nice and and, and serious people. Uh, at the same time, but when <laughs> when they are acting on the Syrian soil. They do not cooperate with Iran or Hezbollah against Israel. Uh, this is their policy. And in general, their policy in Syria, in, in Syria is that uh, uh, the, Rush, the Syrians should defend their sovereignty. And therefore, there is a Syrian army, this Assad regime. And if somebody attacks Syria, this is for the Syrians to, to act. And we've seen many times in the, throughout these years that Russians... Uh, would not like to overstretch themselves in Syria. So their mission is Syria, and I've mentioned it previously, is uh, they fight those people who they define terrorists, and they define this definition from the uh, Western counterparts. Uh, They fight the terrorists, and they uh, defend their bases. They don't defend every inch of the Syrians. So this is for the Syrians to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that this... uh, uh, this is the formula that uh, that helps uh, that helps Israel. Seems how, to work. How how bad was it? There was that incident a couple of years ago when uh, Israel was blamed with the downing of that Russian troop uh, transport aircraft, where where the Syrians fired a missile on uh, Israeli fighter jets, uh, according to certain sources, and the and the missiles ended up hitting uh, a Russian. Uh, aircraft. I think there were something like fifteen soldiers died, 
and then Israel was sort of indirectly blamed for it because yeah, if they hadn't scapegoated, been, if the, yeah, if they hadn't been operating in the area at the time, the Syrians wouldn't have fired anti-aircraft missiles that would have ended up hitting. The, do you remember this incident? Yeah, indeed. So it's the most incident, uh, important incident in the Russian-Israeli uh, relationship considering the Syrian uh, file. So uh, the, you, I think that you have uh, it's a good, good incident to, to understand uh, Russian view so, and the, the way the Russians act. So Israel... Uh, so the, there was uh, Israeli attacks. And following the Israeli attack, the Syrians retaliated with air defenses, and they and the Russian uh, reconnaissance uh, aircraft with 15 uh, soldiers on board was shot down by by by, by an old old Soviet missile. And the uh, and this the Russians uh, said that when. Uh, when Israel uh, announced that there is a deconfliction uh, line, uh, red line, hotline between Israel and Russia, and they said that when Israel announced about this attack, that they said that the attack is going on on the north of Syria, and the, and the Russians had at that time this aircraft acting in the north of Syria, so. Uh, they said they ordered him to return to its uh, base in Ladaki in Hamimim, which is at the Mediterranean coast. But uh, the but the Israeli attack was in Ladakia. From the, from Israeli point of view, maybe Ladakia is north. From Russian point of view, from, from when you look at the Syrian geography, it's west. So the Russians accused Israel. They've uh, tried to uh, lie about this attack, and the Russian uh, version was that uh, that the Israeli aircraft were behind the Russian, that were attacking the Syrian uh, using it as target, cover, uh, using the the, uh, the the Russian plane as a shield, human shield, which was ridiculous for anybody who understood. The, the tactics of, uh, of that incident. So there was a, a lot of uh, uh, dealing with the, with the details of this version between the Israelis and the Russians. And, uh, and I say that uh, the, what you have to listen to, not the details, but the music. But right. the, the, the idea, the, the music, the Russians said, was that the Israel have done this incident, or initiated this incident, and uh, maybe the Syrians were wrong. Uh, maybe the Syrians were wrong, uh, but Israel initiated this incident, and therefore Israel is to be blamed. And, uh, and therefore, uh, despite the, the version was very ridiculous, they put the blame on Israel, and they wanted Israel to uh, to take the responsibility, and Israel was uh, will, will not take responsibility. And Israel said said that the Iranians were uh, the cause of this incident because the Iranians were building mm -hmm. up their capabilities in the Syrian soil, and because the Syrians were uh, fighting uh, in the, uh, without uh, indiscriminately, uh, they are to be blamed. But uh, I think that uh, the strength of the Russian-Israeli relationship. 
is uh, is uh, something to learn from this incident. Uh, first, uh, President Putin at the, f- the very first day of the the incident was at night. At the morning, the Russian Ministry of Defense started to accuse Israel of this incident. And uh, at the midday, when Putin was speaking about it, he said, it's a tragic sequence of events. Uh, it's unlike the previous event when uh, the Turkey shoot down uh, intentionally the Russian plane, the Russian eyes. And, uh, and it's, they said that it's not the blame of, pol- Russia, of Israeli political uh, level, it's, uh, it's military level. Okay, so, that's, a, that's a nice clean way to try to get around it. Um, yeah. I, I, I kind of want to maybe use this as kind of a last, uh, last segment of the show. Can you describe to us Russia-Israel relations today? First of all, what are they based on? Is there trade? I mean, we know we have the... the we, we talked at the beginning of the episode that there's about a million people who speak Russian who are citizens of Israel. Um, and and I've, I've, I've heard that Russia feels it has a strong cultural connection to that sense in Israel. But in, in kind of like a tachlis and a kind of a bottom line level... What what are the relations based on? Is there is there trade? Is there exchanges? Is there is there what? Uh, what what are the what's the structure of the relations? Religious heritage. Yeah. So each sides view something uh, different. So from it's different from Russian point of view and from the Israeli point of view. <laughs> from the Russian point of view, and I will speak. There is uh, we'll speak about since. Uh, 2014. 2014, Russia annexed Crimea, and uh, uh, there was a rupture between Russia and the West. And Israel didn't join uh, the West in the sanctions, and it was not. Uh, what, despite the fact that Russia, Israel doesn't uh, recognize the annexation of Crimea. It recognized Ukraine with its uh, full borders as, as the Western countries, but Israel most of the time doesn't join anti-Russian uh, resolutions and is, uh, is publicly it's, uh, it's almost neutral. And uh, Russia, uh, uh, it's very important for Russia because uh, one of the main uh, targets of or goals of, of the United States and the European Union was to try to uh, to make Russia pay the price, to isolate Russia. It was very important for Russia to have several Western-oriented countries uh, to continue uh, their connections uh, with Russia. Another issue is the issue of uh, historical memory. And for Russia, when Russia is trying to explain why it deserves a special role in the world, in the European architecture of security, it comes back to the 1945. Russian narrative is in 1945, the modern international system was established, having the uh, United Nations in the center and Security Council of the United Nations managing the affairs between the powers and the, and because of the Russia being the victorious party of the uh, victorious power in the World War II, Russia deserves a special place in the European security. Nowadays, this uh, narrative is being attacked by the East European countries. They say Russia's 
red arm is not uh, uh, is not a savior. It's uh, an aggressor. They put forward Molotov Ribbentrop Agreement and the communist regime, and Israel is one of the small, um, maybe even unique voice worldwide, which constantly speaks about that we cherish the role of the of the Red Army um, in the defeating uh, of the Nazi Germany and the uh, and the release of the uh, concentration camps. So it's very, very important. And if uh, in our was... conference uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, the Russian uh, speakers said that Israel is a Russian global partner on this issue. I, I think in 2019, uh, didn't Netanyahu attend Russian, uh, uh, I don't know what the occasion was, but there was some sort of a Russian, maybe it was Liberation Day or maybe it was something, some commemoration of the it's, Red Army. In, in 2018, he, yeah. 2018, he attended the uh, the 9th of May, the Victory Day Parade. Right, he sat on the dais next to Putin and, and it was a, yeah. a big uh, public It's very uh, important, show. It's very important gesture for them. The optics and, of uh, it were very telling. And also another issue, we were speaking about the, tri- the attempts to fill this void of communist ideology with new elements of this uh, Christian Orthodox faith. So it's very important for, the, for, for Putin tries to, to portray himself as very uh, religious man uh, to, uh, to bring back to the hands of the Russian uh, church different uh, uh, holy sites in Jerusalem. This is uh, one of the issues Russia deals with. Also, Russia would like to increase trade with Israel, uh, but uh, and we have about the different uh, uh, different ways to count. The Russians and the Israelis count it differently, but it's about two three billion dollars a year plus. And uh, in, in what, what what are the main components of the trade? Uh, the main component, one of the main components from the Russian export is raw materials, oil, diamonds, raw diamonds, uh, and, uh, and etc. And Israel have uh, Hummus. <laughs> some agriculture, electronics. Uh, uh, but uh, what we find out in our book and in the conference that there is a limit and uh, there are different expectations. And if if uh, the two countries will not uh, very much uh, try uh, try to build new bases for this uh, uh, economic cooperation, it will not uh, increase. The, the new, they have to build on uh, services, and it's very difficult to build on services without building a, a, a good infrastructure. From Israel's point of view, Russia is important because uh, it's growing footprint in the Middle East. Right. Because it be, because it's uh, it, it is uh, it's our most most one most important issue nowadays is because it is our neighbor in Syria and uh, because of its importance in in uh, Syrian and Iranian file. Uh, we should look also at Russia. Uh, looking at a stronger role in Lebanon, stronger role in Egypt. It's it's all all over the Middle East, Russia is becoming more important. Uh, You remember, you've mentioned the one million uh, 
uh, Russian-speaking people about yeah. <laughs> talking about it. So there is some cultural bridge between sure. Russia and uh, and Israel, and they and uh, and if we compare Israel to other Western countries, uh, in general, they are less uh, hostile to Russia, uh, the, the Israeli public, than 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 other places. So this minority. Uh, brings uh, make, uh, gives Russia some uh, some feeling of of an empire. They mm-hmm. they Putin is uh, tries to uh, speak about his uh, duty to his uh, to to secure those uh, those million Russian speaking uh, uh, Israelis. So. This uh, so this relationship is uh, have a, its political component, its, uh, its uh, geostrategic component, its cultural component. People say that when when everything will uh, will fail, the cultural bonds might might help to keep those relations yeah. going. And uh, and I think that the. Uh, uh, and also, there is an, an important issue of the leadership relationship, which was very uh, important under Netanyahu. And now, the, and now uh, it seems that they have a good bond during uh, Bennett's uh, Prime Minister Bennett's visit to Sochi. Are there any? Uh, uh, are there any senior Israeli leaders now who? I, mean, I guess maybe Lieberman is Lieberman on good terms with the. With Putin, is there anyone senior? You know, before you had Netanyahu himself, but uh, he always had uh, you know Zev Elkin with him. Yuli Edelstein, maybe. Uh, is there anyone now who's in power who who is is uh, uh, you know speaks Russian? So Elkin, uh, as when uh, Minister Zev Elkin is uh, in, in the government, both in Netan- under Netanyahu, and currently he's heading the. Okay. It's called Intergovernmental Joint Commission Got for it. Economic Cooperation. So he's uh, he's in charge of economic cooperation. But I think that the Foreign Minister Lapid is uh, enjoys a relationship with uh, with the Foreign Minister Lavrov and uh, uh, National Security Council Hulata speaks with uh, his counterpart Patrushov. So there are uh, different channels of uh, of cooperation, uh, maybe uh, the other point, the other side of the coin is that Russia is uh, is not only good thing. So Russia is helping Israeli enemies uh, in weapon sales, and uh, many Israelis uh, um, accuse Russia that it helps Iran. Uh, to entrench itself in Syria. So, from the Russian point of view, uh, they are more neutral, but many Israelis look at it as uh, hostile uh, steps. Uh, Russia sells weapons to different countries in the Middle East, including uh, Iran and Syria, right? Potential, potential threat. And uh, not always Russia and Israel are on the same page on the Palestinian issue. Uh, and uh, and also uh, so even in the Ukrainian issue we, we we like Ukraine and we have to play carefully this game currently it's not uh, not an easy uh, time for Israel. 
it's it, it, the Ukraine that we didn't spend a lot of time talking about that at all. But it it oftentimes feels to me like if there was something that had to like push comes to shove. This is a very undiplomatic thing for me to say, but I'll say it. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> like I, I, I feel like we would throw Ukraine under the bus. <laughs> so it's a, it's a problem. The Western world would not like uh, to fight for Ukraine, uh, and uh, so it's a from from. Uh, but on the other on the other hand, they would not like to acknowledge that they are part of the Russian sphere of influence. So I think that's from the Russian uh, point of view. Uh, there is some hypocrisy on the Western. Let me, let me. Because, because I will say, because the West will not admit that the West has its sphere of influence, right. so, and it doesn't approach the Russian one. So, but it will. Uh, yep. Let me let me ask you this, kind of just wrapping up. Many of us uh, here, especially Dan and I. I mean, I think people that that come from from the U.S. that live in Israel, we often felt comforted from the U.S.'s influence in the region and its involvement here in the Middle East. That it somehow it's it, you know its stability or perceived stability made us feel secure here in Israel. Um, being from uh, be, being from Ukraine or being from from a country you know more more aligned with Russian influence. Uh, do you see Russia's engagement in the region sort of giving people, should we feel a sense of security or stability from that here as Israelis? I think that uh, we are the, uh, our alliance with the United States is still the main pillar of right, national security. It's quite clear. And if we will have to choose, we will choose the Americans. And it's uh, uh, no, uh, no, no question mark. I think that when uh, United States look at, uh, at rip, uh, to change its posture in the region uh, to uh, to focus in Asia. And when the regional feeling is that the United States uh, is uh, decreasing its, its footprint here, uh, it is important for Israel to have connections with Russia, with China. It's not to exchange allegiance, but to have, have connections and to try to further the, its interests through this uh, relationship. And uh, having more options will bring more security. Yeah. It's definitely pragmatic and, and the smart thing to do. Well, I, I think it's fair to say, I that must say that. I must say that on this subject, it's, uh, so it's, it's, it's wise pragmatically, but many people attack Israel because they, they say that being a partner of the United States, being a part of the Western camp, it should raise its voice against Russia, against uh, what it does internally. But it's a... Uh, it's a question of what kind of policy should Israel. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, look, I, I, I can I can understand that sentiment, but at the end of the day, that sentiment's kind of just showing or signaling some sort of a virtue. The fact of the matter is, is if the United States is not entrenched in our in our in our in our backyard or in Syria, like Russia is, you know, we don't have the. You could argue to say that you know we we don't have the uh, we, we don't have the luxury, the, the to, luxury be so high, right. to be so high and mighty. Um, and I think it's something that's underappreciated um, about about Israeli policymaking and strategy over the last 
decade, let's say, um, as it manages, you know, what, what, what you've spread out for us over the last two hours has been uh, a fascinating and super complex, super nuanced um, explanation of, of, of a great power in the region, in the world, that is not easy to read and doesn't have, um, you know, it, it's, it's all about interests and calculating what those interests are. And it knows how to work with Israel and knows how to work with Iran and Hezbollah and Syria. And it knows how to work with the U.S. when it needs to in Europe. And it knows how to work with, you know, who, whoever it needs to serve its own interests. And, and the, on the one hand, that makes it easier um, to find common ground with Russia, uh, define what its interests are and, and work with those. On the other hand, it makes it hard because it doesn't play... Um, this isn't the Soviet bloc versus the the democratic Western bloc anymore. There's no ideological element here. It's all about interest. It's all about access and influence and resources. And and one thing that Israel, I think, has done superbly well over the last decade or so, um, certainly under Netanyahu's time, he navigated this relationship with Russia, which is super complex. It's super nuanced. It's it's very interest-based and not ideological-based in any way. And it's easy to criticize it, um, but Israel, like you said, doesn't have the luxury no. to, to always be um, you know, ideological, even if it wishes it could be. And um, so we appreciate, Daniel, we really appreciate you taking uh, this time and kind of laying all this out for us and, and giving us a much deeper and, and, and more complex understanding of um, of one of the great powers of the world who has been our neighbor de facto for the last uh, seven years, I guess, or eight years. Um, how can people follow you if they want to follow your writing, your speaking, uh, your social media, whatever it is? How, how can people get in touch with you? So I, I'm your JISS. So there is a JISS site. And uh, there are some people, something that I've written in INSS uh, that can be looked by Google. And if people want to check out this new publication that you were behind, uh, what's it called and how did they find it? Uh, it's called uh, 30 Years of uh, Russian-Israeli Relations, Past, Present and Future. It's going to be published at the INSS site. So, uh, Will it be published in English? It, it will be published in English, but I think it will take about two months. It will uh, currently only Russian edition is already available it's, but it's out now in russian it, it's already in russian it, it it is going to be published in hebrew in about a month's time i think and for our about, listeners in russia how, how do you say the name of the, the the book in russian how do we say in russian 30 лет полноформатных дипломатических отношений между россией и израилем прошлое настоящее будущее Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Daniel, for being with us. Daniel Rakov, everybody. Uh, one of the best Israeli experts on uh, on Russia and Russian foreign policy in Russia and the Middle East. The leading. The leading. <laughs> and, but uh, for sure, I was interviewed by the best <laughs> podcast interviewers. We'd, we'd like to think so, for sure. And uh, join thank us you. next time on Juanced. And uh, hope everyone is staying healthy yep. and uh, staying COVID-free. Stay, uh, <laughs> I don't even know what, what, what to say here. I mean, I don't know. It, it, tr try your very best to avoid the plague. <laughs> <laughs> take care, everybody. All right, take care. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you, Daniel. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. 
make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.